Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with the literature really as easy as possible, and so we're trying to spoon-feed you the latest research through your earbuds. Here, let's take a quick look ahead and spoil everything that we're going to be covering from this week. First off, bronchiolitis and bronchiodilators. Should we or should not we? Then, is high risk actually high risk for breweries with classically worrisome features? After that, we'd all hope to survive an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. What are the outcomes in the emergency department, and which sites do better at it? Then, making medicine a place we'd all like to work in. And finally, why first-pass success actually matters in critically ill patients. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the indispensable Gabby Leonard, Seth Walsh-Blackmore, Aaron Lacey, Nicholas Rika, and Clay Smith. Now then, without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled The Use of Bronchiodilators and Outcomes in Bronchiolitis, out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Now, I know it's going to take a little bit of work for you to shift your mind away from COVID to think about other viruses. All that social distancing that we've had going on has altered the patterns of other transmissible diseases. One such is RSV in infants. That's the pesky virus that causes bronchiolitis, which actually accounts for a significant proportion of pediatric hospital admissions. Now, what to do with these bronchiolitis patients when they actually come coughing into your department? Always close at hand for pretty much any troubled breathing are usually bronchiodilators, which, probably because of their name, just feels so right. But since as far back as 2014, the American Academy of Pediatrics has not supported the use of bronchodilators for bronchiolitis. Doctors are a hard-headed group, though, so let's again convince ourselves that bronchodilators are not helpful. This was a multi-center retrospective cross-sectional study reviewing over 445,000 emergency department visits over a nine-year period looking for differences in outcomes as a result of bronchodilator use in bronchiolitis. I'll give you a hint about the results. The American Academy of Pediatrics, well, they have it right. Comparing the highest and lowest rates of bronchodilator use, there was no difference in really much of anything, including hospital admissions, ICU admissions, emergency department return visits, non-invasive ventilation, or even invasive ventilation. Interestingly, but not related to bronchodilator use, over the study period from 2010 to 2018, rates of admissions and return visits decreased, while rates of ICU admissions, non-invasive and invasive ventilation rates actually increased. Hmm, just something to think about. So let's keep away from what's well-established not to help. Things that are currently recommended are supportive care, ventilatory support, and suctioning, all being first line for bronchiolitis. In a spoonful, for infants less than 12 months old with bronchiolitis, bronchodilators were not helpful in improving hospital admission rates, emergency department return rates, or rates of requiring ventilatory support. Then the second article, titled Risk Factors and Outcomes After a Brief Resolved Unexplained Event, a multi-center study out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Brief Resolved Unexplained Events, or BRUIS, which that word always freaks me out a little bit because bruit is a French word which means noise, so when I hear bruit, to me that just sounds like an English person really butchering a French word, but I digress. So, these used to be called apparent life-threatening events, but that was changed because that was scaring, well, pretty much everybody, and they're benign more often than not. Some breweries could be considered high-risk, perhaps harbingers of something more severe to come, 
There are criteria for this kind of thing, and they could be helpful. But just how helpful are they at actually predicting poor outcomes? This was a multi-center retrospective cohort of over 2,000 children who met criteria for having a brewery that were identified by chart review. The primary endpoint was the diagnosis of a serious condition explaining the emergency department visit, which were found in only 4% of cases. The American Academy of Pediatrics' high-risk criteria were then used as covariates for multivariate regression. Now, the absence of high-risk criteria had a strong negative predictive value of 97% for there not being any underlying serious condition. But the positive predictive value was pretty abysmal at only 4%. The things that give you the most bang for your buck in predicting serious conditions were an abnormal medical history with an odds ratio of 7.3, a history of similar events with an odds ratio of 4.1, an event duration over one minute with an odds ratio of 3.6, and altered responsiveness with, again, an odds ratio of 3.6. All in all, this study supports the use of the American Academy of Pediatrics high-risk criteria, at least for selecting patients to go home. It's not going to be that helpful in deciding who needs further workup and possible admission, though. So you'll have to take the whole clinical picture into account. It's worth mentioning that the most often misdiagnoses were seizures and abusive head trauma, so perhaps doubling down on those two possibilities would be in the best interest of your child. In a spoonful, the presence of the American Academy of Pediatrics' high-risk brewery criteria are not accurate predictors of a serious underlying condition as a whole. But the most predictive factors that might be helpful were an abnormal medical history, a history of similar events, an event lasting more than one minute, and altered responsiveness. The criteria were, however, helpful in predicting low-risk children. From there, we move on to the third article, which was titled Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Outcomes in Emergency Departments out of the Journal of Resuscitation. Unfortunately, survival rates for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest are pretty bad. Only about 12% of patients will actually survive to discharge. The more we know about factors that are at play here, the more we might be able to optimize systems to get better outcomes. This was a retrospective study that obtained data from the Australian Ambulance Registry of over 1,500 patients with non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrests with presentations to 12 different hospitals. Patients were excluded if they were pronounced dead prior to or on arrival. 81% of patients had an identifiable cause of arrest, most of which were cardiac. 81% of patients also had bystander CPR, and 74% arrived to hospital with ROSC already. Patients had the best chances of survival if they were taken to hospital centers with 24-hour cath lab capabilities available and who normally see more than 51 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests per year. These hospitals give an adjusted odds ratio of 3.34 for survival. A big takeaway from this study is that while overall out-of-hospital cardiac arrest rates are low, if you make it to an emergency department, then your chances of survival to hospital discharge increase to 43%. You have to be really careful though, since 20% of patients who get ROSC before arrival or in the emergency department are going to go on to re-arrest, so you have to stay on your toes. Now, as is true with all things, Practice really does make perfect, and centers that see more arrests seem to handle those arrests better. 
I've kind of always thought about this, actually. Like, when I'm older, maybe above the age of 70, I'd like to live in a place where the nearest available hospital is a high-volume, PCI-capable center. You know, just in case. In a spoonful, if you're lucky enough to make it to the hospital out of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, then your chances of survival improve significantly. If the center is also a high-volume center with 24-7 cath lab availability, then you're even better off. And now the fourth article, titled Creating an Organizational Culture for the Chest Physician, out of the journal, well, Chest. If you're anything like me, then you just phase out when people read the titles of articles on podcasts. If you're not, then you may have gleaned from the title that this article is about organizational culture. Here, organization refers to like the hospital or your team. This isn't a productivity article. And this article defines organizational culture as behavioral patterns or style that new employees are automatically encouraged to follow by fellow employees. Or to put it more simply, that's just the way things are done here. Now, to think about it in a slightly different way, while it's true that some very resilient plants are going to be able to grow up through cracks in concrete, if you instead have a fresh bed of soil and a tender gardener, then almost any plant can flourish and the whole garden will do better as a result. This is essentially what you're aiming for with a good organizational culture. And to accomplish this, there are seven virtues that can be used as ingredients. Trust, compassion, courage, justice, wisdom, temperance, and hope. Let's unpack each of these a little bit with a few points from the article. Trust. Teams feel the pain of other members when they hurt, and they try to help. In some ways, this means putting the needs of your team on par with your own needs. Now, this can seem exhausting. This can even seem like self-sabotage. But when the entire team does this, then you're going to be held up by so much more than you could possibly carry on your own. Courage. Members of a good team will, I quote, do the hard right rather than the easy wrong. It's easy not to face your own shortcomings or not to address those of others. But over time, we'll all fall apart if that's our strategy. Leaders model courage by being vulnerable humble, teachable, and actually having the hard conversations. Justice. All members of a team must be treated equitably in all respects. Favoritism is poison. Abide by the rules, and when they bend, they should bend equally for everyone. Wisdom. Think about the long term. Use foresight and good judgment. Don't take shortcuts for short-term comforts. The leader models this by constantly learning, reading, asking for advice, and consistently doing the right thing. Temperance. Easier said than done, but attempt to keep a calm head. Remember that the first step in any emergency is to take your own pulse. Calm is contagious. And then finally, hope. With a clear goal in mind, hope for better things to come makes today's reality much easier to work through. Leaders should foster a vision for a brighter future and make sure that this vision is known to everyone and that the steps in that direction are clear. In a spoonful, making your workplace the place you actually want to work starts with you and it ends with everybody. Give it your all and recruit to your cause.
Which brings us to our last article, which was titled Fewer Tracheal Intubation Attempts Are Associated with Improved Neurologically Intact Survival Following Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest out of the Journal of Resuscitation. When managing an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, advanced management of the airway is absolutely essential and is strongly emphasized in international guidelines. What exactly is the best method for actually handling the airway, though? That's not quite well defined yet. For those who perform endotracheal intubations, we always hear about how important first-pass success rates are. Here we see how multiple attempts at intubation can actually impact neurologically intact survival. This study was a retrospective observational cohort evaluating over 1,200 patients who were treated by the Seattle Fire Department for non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and received one or more attempts at laryngoscopy during resuscitation by EMS providers. One attempt was counted for every time the laryngoscopy blade was introduced between the teeth. The primary outcome was favorable neurological status at hospital discharge. So in this cohort, 63% of intubations were accomplished on the first attempt, 86 were accomplished within two attempts, and overall 97% of intubations were successful. Overall, that's okay, but the relative likelihood of surviving to hospital discharge with favorable neurological outcomes, by the way, if someone could make an acronym for that, it'd be great, it takes a long time to say. Anyways. So these outcomes actually decrease by 59% for every subsequent intubation attempt beyond the first. In this cohort, that meant that only 11% of patients survived a hospital discharge at all, and only 8% survived with favorable neurological outcomes. All of this will, of course, make sense when you see the time that it takes to secure an advanced airway when there's multiple attempts involved. If it was done on the first pass, then there was an advanced airway in place within 4.9 minutes since EMS arrival. If it was done on the second pass, then there was 8 minutes. If it was done on the third, then 11 minutes. If there are 4 or more attempts, then it took more than 15 minutes of resting without a definite airway. You can see here the importance of making the first attempt the very best attempt. You should also never consider the use of adjuncts to be failures to getting your airway, but rather successes in proper airway management. Don't keep trying the same thing either. Anything past two attempts, and that warrants a totally new approach. At least that's what I've been taught. The addition of a standardized video laryngoscopy or a bougie might improve first-pass success in this setting. Also, supraglottic airways are considered an advanced airway, and they might be much easier to place in an environment that's harder to optimize. In a spoonful, this study demonstrated an independent association between the number of intubation attempts and worsening odds of survival with neurologically favorable outcomes in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac events. Now let's go over everything that we covered just to, you know, review. First off, from the first article, they may make you feel better, but they don't seem to help your young patients. Bronchodilators were not helpful in improving the outcomes of bronchiolitis in this study. From the second article, breweries are scary for patients, and they can feel like diagnostic conundrums for clinicians. The American Academy of Pediatrics' criteria for high-risk breweries can be helpful for deciding who to send home if they're all absent, but their presence doesn't necessarily warrant, you know, full workup and admission, so take it with a grain of salt. Then from the third article, after an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, making it to the emergency department greatly improves your chances of survival, 
even more so if that center sees a lot of similar arrests and has PCI capabilities available at all hours of the day. From the fourth article, we had a few tips on how to grow a healthy work culture that will benefit everyone. Then from the last article, make the first attempt the best attempt. This study showed worse outcomes with more attempts at intubation by EMS providers in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And that wraps us all up. Now then, you've earned them, we offer them CME credits that are provided through a partnership that we have with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at that same place as well. And if you haven't already, then you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you. Survival with favorable neurological outcomes. S-F-N-O. Svino. 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 No, nothing sounds good.